I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Let us say to the democracy, we Americans are vitally concerned in your defense of freedom. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. We shall send you, in ever-increasing numbers, ships, planes, tanks, guns. That is our purpose and our pledge. In January of 1941, Nazi Germany had occupied France, was bombing Britain, and was preparing to invade the Soviet Union. It was nearly a year before the attack on Pearl Harbor, and the United States was still officially neutral. But in his State of the Union address, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt claimed that freedom itself was under attack. Freedom means the supremacy of human rights everywhere. Our support goes to those who struggle to gain those rights and keep them. And while arguing for greater U.S. involvement in the war, he described four basic rights which must be defended. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. In the case of real dangers, a healthy dose of fear is critical to living with their ever-present possibility. You can't have freedom from danger, but you can have freedom from fear. Fiona Hill is the final speaker in this year's BBC Read Lectures. Hill is a British-American foreign affairs specialist and former member of the U.S. National Security Council. She was an advisor on Russia to former U.S. President Donald Trump and testified against him in his first impeachment trial. In this lecture, she examines what Roosevelt's freedom from fear means today. Putin is playing on the sum of everyone's fears. Putin's nuclear Armageddon is nothing more than nuclear blackmail. She argues that Russian President Vladimir Putin, during Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is masterful at manipulating fear in Ukraine and around the world. With the final BBC Reef Lecture from Washington, D.C., here's Fiona Hill. So 2022 is the centenary of the BBC. It's also the 100th anniversary of the creation of the USSR from the remnants of the Russian Empire. In 1922, Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks cemented power in Russia after five years of revolution and civil war, all against the backdrop of World War I and the Great Influenza. 1922 was the end of one tumultuous period and the beginning of another, an era that saw the rise of the Soviet Union and other authoritarian states, and a second outbreak 
of World War. Today, we're in a similar period of turmoil. Our world is disrupted by a multi-year global pandemic, mounting climate disasters, and racked by the fear of a nuclear conflict sparked by Vladimir Putin's efforts to reforge the Russian Empire. Since February 24th, 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine, we've found ourselves embroiled in what Russian President Vladimir Putin has called a special military operation. In reality, this is a full-blown war. It's the third major power conflict over territory in Europe in just over a century. And like the others before it, this war has global reverberations, threatening the energy, food and climate security of populations far away from Europe in Africa, Asia and Latin America. The 100-year time span we acknowledge today is infused with an eerie parallelism. 1914 saw the beginning of World War I, when the German army invaded the low countries of Belgium and Luxembourg, and then France. 2014 was the beginning of the current war in Ukraine, initiated by Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea in March that year, and the manufacturing of a conflict in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. Russia's war in Ukraine has upended the European and global institutions that underpinned international security after World War II, governed relations among states, and prevented great power conflict during the Cold War. Just as Adolf Hitler seized the Sudetenland from Czechoslovakia, annexed Austria, and invaded Poland in the late 1930s, overturning the post-World War I order, Vladimir Putin has repudiated and violated international norms and agreements. This includes guarantees of Ukraine's territorial integrity that Russia itself undertook together with the United States and the United Kingdom in 1994. To restore or establish peace again, we'll have to come up with some new security arrangements. But in the meantime, we're at war. Modern war is fought by a range of means, not just by military forces. It's fought with economic measures, financial sanctions, cyber attacks, political influence operations, disinformation and propaganda. Nonetheless, the trench warfare of World War I has its analogues in the trenches on the front lines in Ukraine. Plenty of heavy weapons, men and ammunition have gone to the front. There are high levels of violence. And like the invading German armies of the two previous world wars, Russia has laid waste to Ukrainian cities, towns and villages. Its militaries committed atrocities against civilians. Both the Russian and Ukrainian sides have incurred significant casualties. Their political rhetoric is increasingly zero-sum. Win or lose, with nothing in between. And on September 30th, 2022, in a speech announcing Russia's annexation of the still four contested Ukrainian regions, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia and Kherson, Russian President Vladimir Putin explicitly declared war on the West. Putin's annexation speech also evoked parallels between 1922 and 2022. Putin has said his invasion of Ukraine was necessary to right a historical wrong correct a mistake made by Lenin and the Bolsheviks when they created a separate Ukrainian socialist republic as part of the Soviet Union in 1922. Ukraine, Putin claims, is a state that should never have existed. And so Putin is forcing Europe to go back in time. He will now try to make sure that Ukraine is erased from the map. And another unsettling echo of those times, the stories of Russian soldiers on the battlefield in Ukraine 
captured on their phones by Ukrainian military intercepts as they talked to their families, align with the tales of Russian soldiers talking to each other and terrorizing Ukrainian civilians during the Russian Civil War of the 1920s. These early discussions and exploits were captured by an astute observer of that period, the celebrated Russian writer Isaac Babel, who was embedded with the revolutionary troops. He recounted them in his famous collection of short stories, Red Cavalry. In these parallel accounts of the 2020s and the 1920s, time loops back on itself. Perhaps it even stands still. Or more likely, the violent patterns of men simply persist and the fears they engender. Fear has always been a weapon of war as well as a political commodity. In waging his war in Ukraine, Putin has raised anew the age-old fear of the end of the world. Not the biblical apocalypse, but the end of the world in a nuclear cataclysm. After more than 70 years of the world renouncing the use of nuclear weapons, Putin has threatened to use one on the battlefield, citing the precedent of the United States detonating atomic weapons over the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. Putin says he may resort to a nuclear response if Ukraine retakes territory annexed by Russia since 2014. Nuclear Armageddon is emblazoned in newspaper headlines, discussed in political gatherings, featured in academic reports and provoking nightmares. Ordinary citizens in Europe are stockpiling iodine tablets and scoping out Cold War-era fallout shelters. In one report from Rutgers University here in the United States, researchers predicted that 5 billion worldwide could starve in the wake of a nuclear conflict between Russia and America because of the catastrophic disruption of global food supplies. Vladimir Putin has transformed himself into the much-feared biblical four-horsemen of the apocalypse. In this instance, he is one pale, bare-chested rider, as he's often photographed by Kremlin propagandists during staged action holidays in Siberia. But now he's carrying the banner of a war of conquest in Ukraine and of a nuclear holocaust that will bring global famine and death in the wake of the coronavirus pestilence. Now, Putin's goals in conjuring the apocalypse are not biblical. They are base and tactical. Russia is not like the United States in the Second World War, seeking to end a brutal multi-year war in Asia that Japan began. Nor is Putin even pursuing the Soviet Union's Cold War aim to uphold deterrence and prevent a ruinous superpower conflict by reviving the fear of mutually assured destruction. Putin is not seeking to maintain great power nuclear parity, nor strategic stability with the United States. There has been no change in the nuclear balance. The United States has not threatened Russia, nor has any other nuclear power. Instead, Putin threatens a preemptive, one-sided use of a nuclear weapon because he's losing a war that he himself started in Ukraine in February 2022. Putin's nuclear Armageddon is nothing more than nuclear blackmail. Putin is playing on the sum of everyone's fears. His aim is to end American and European military support to Kyiv, to force the capitulation of Ukraine's government, and to ensure the surrender of Ukrainian territory to Russia. Now, of course, this threat of nuclear Armageddon is not new. Dire predictions have been made before. And during the Cold War, the world teetered on the precipice of a superpower nuclear conflict at least twice, first during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and again during the Euro Missile War Scare in 1983. And indeed, the 1980s 
were replete with academic studies and government reports describing how a nuclear conflict would lead to sun-blocking soot and ash killing crops. Then, the already looming threat of climate change faded into the insignificance against the threat of a nuclear winter. TV series like The Day After in the United States in 1983 and films like Threads in the United Kingdom in 1984 horrified and terrified American and British publics with harrowing depictions of the aftermath of a nuclear exchange. Now, I was a teenager in the 1980s and filled with fear at the prospect of imminent nuclear war. My teenage self checked out hiding spots under the dining room table, in the cupboard under the stairs, and behind the thick yellow curtains my parents hung in the front room to protect our eyes from the blinding flash of the first explosion. I contemplated cowering in a ditch if I was caught outside when the missiles struck. But nothing seemed much of a defence in those circumstances. Safety was an illusion. Fears crowded my mind and fogged my brain. I had my own frequent nightmares of nuclear Armageddon, although Vladimir Putin, the pale horseman, was still a long way off in the future. At the suggestion of an elderly relative who had survived the horrors of World War II, I decided to confront the fears head-on. I would study Russian and try to visit the USSR. I would assert my own agency and fight fear with information and knowledge. I began my studies in 1984, and I ended up as an exchange student in Moscow in 1987 and 1988. The nightmares disappeared as soon as I got there, and I saw the place and the people for myself. Those nightmares have never returned, despite Vladimir Putin's best efforts. And after years of studying Russian and Russia, and decades of closely analysing Putin, I know he's just a man. Operating in his own specific context, he has predictable patterns. He can be counted. And resorting to the use of a nuclear weapon would be an enormous gamble, even for someone who can be as reckless and ruthless as Putin. Nonetheless, Vladimir Putin is a master of manipulating fear. He knows fear's value as a political commodity. He knows how to deploy fear for maximum effect. Putin has long threatened to play the nuclear card because he knows the psychological impact it has and the sense of helplessness and hopelessness it engenders. During a bilateral US-Russia meeting at the G20 in Osaka in 2019, where I was present, Putin warned President Donald Trump that he, Putin, would stir up all the old fears of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Euro Missile Crisis if the US did not engage in arms control negotiations on his terms. He bragged that Russia had already developed sophisticated nuclear weapons that the US still did not have. He was ready to press his nuclear advantage even before the war in Ukraine, and to play on our fears. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who we celebrate in this lecture series Focus on the Four Freedoms, outlined in his 1941 State of the Union address all of the fears and the freedoms. He fully understood the political salience of fear. FDR knew that people could be paralysed by the fear of poorly understood events. They were prone to the manipulation of their fears and thus intimidation and exploitation. If people were filled with fear, they were incapable of taking the necessary individual and collective action to deal with the disaster. Now, fear, of course, is a normal response to a real or perceived threat. All animals exhibit fear, both predators and prey. And a sense of fear is essential to prepare for risk and act in the case of danger ahead. 
But fear is often engendered by something imagined rather than real. We fear what we don't know, not just what we do, like the danger of nuclear weapons. In the case of real dangers, a healthy dose of fear is critical to living with their ever-present possibility. You can't have freedom from danger, but you can have freedom from fear. There will always be hidden dangers, but you can do something about them. You can prepare yourself for danger, ensure against danger. Freedom from fear is essential for personal and societal resilience in the face of peril. Now, this takes me back to my studies of Russian. The Russian word for insurance is actually based on this very concept that I've just outlined. The idea of protection from fear, or strach. The word insurance in Russian is proof or preparation against fear, strachovanya. And indeed, having insurance in any form helps to relieve fear through the knowledge that you are prepared for the inevitability of danger and the risk of something happening. You're ready to deal with it. In contrast to this pleasing synergy between the word and its meaning, the Russian word for security is less satisfying and a lot more troubling. Security is something that Vladimir Putin always craves, and he states his imperative in everything that he does, including invading Ukraine. He's invaded Ukraine to ensure Russia's security by taking Ukraine off the map. Now, the Russian word for security is bezopasnost, or literally, without danger. In effect, the Russian word for security is safety in absolute terms. This suggests that the Russian concept or idea of security seeks the impossible, the creation of a world without danger, where everyone can be completely safe at all times. Now, the sense of that kind of security or safety will always be false, as false as the words of leaders who promise it to themselves and their followers. In this conception of security, there can be no freedom from fear. Danger will always be there. It cannot be eliminated. And fear will also always be present because we can never be in complete control. We cannot have absolute safety. We can only have insurance and prepare ourselves to deal with danger. Just as Vladimir Putin wants his version of security, he also wants control of events. And indeed, most of us would like to have the same thing. We're afraid of the sudden loss of control in our ever-complex world. At times of conflict, or when major societal changes happen rapidly and in combination, fear predominates. We are plunged into what the insightful scholar of the 20th century, Fritz Stern, called cultural despair. Stern focused on the fears that roiled Germany in the turbulent period between World War I and World War II. He described cultural despair as the sense of loss, grievance and anxiety that occurs when people feel dislocated from their communities and broader society as everything and everyone shifts around them. Cultural despair leads to populism in politics and from there to authoritarianism, as Stern noted in tracking the rise of Adolf Hitler in Germany. Populism and authoritarianism are rooted in fear. Fears of loss, fears from the past and fears of the future. Fears of the other, like refugees, migrants, people who are simply different in some way or think differently from the mainstream. These fears emerge when societies undergo rapid change. Populism shaped European and US politics in the 1920s and 1930s, after World War I and the 1918 influenza epidemic and the Great Depression. It arose again in the 1960s and in the 1980s during generational and technological shifts. 
Vladimir Putin is a populist who came to power after a decade of political turmoil and economic collapse in Russia. Putin promised to provide security and safety, as well as prosperity, as long as Russians acquiesced in his ultimate authority. And throughout history, fear has been used by more powerful people to prey on the weak during difficult times. Populists today, like Putin in Russia, Donald Trump in the United States, Narendra Modi in India, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, and also Xi Jinping in China, appeal to people who fear they have lost their livelihoods along with their identities and their cultural moorings at times of rapid social change and political and economic uncertainty. They present themselves as strongmen leaders who can restore order from chaos. Back in the 1920s, populism spurred the emergence of the Soviet Union, an authoritarian, propagandist state whose Bolshevik leaders established power through intimidation and violence and then ruled by fear. The Soviet Union rose alongside fascist Germany, Italy and Spain. And in these authoritarian states, fear prevented people from achieving self-actualization and deprived them of individual agency. The fear that authoritarianism could also take root in the United Kingdom or the United States inspired George Orwell's novel 1984. Orwell's statue stands outside the entrance to the BBC in London's Portland Place. He worked there in the 1940s during the Second World War, having fought against fascism in Spain in the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s. One of Orwell's quotes is etched on the wall behind his statue, and it reads, If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear, or perhaps what they fear to hear, which is often the same thing. And perhaps Orwell's greatest fear was the loss of freedom. In the novel, 1984, fear of the truth leads to the imposition of state control and the loss of the individual. As I mentioned, 1984 was the year I went to university, right after the Euro Missile War Scare of 1983. One of the first novels I read at university in my Russian literature class was from the 1920s, Yevgeny Zamyatin's Mui, or We, which it turned out was the literary precursor of Orwell's 1984. The mass societies of the United States, United Kingdom and the USSR all rose and came together in the 1920s. Zamyatin was an astute observer of the rapid societal changes that accompanied the development of heavy industry and large-scale manufacturing in the early 20th century. He spent some time working in the shipyards of Newcastle-on-Tyne in the northeast of England, not far from my hometown, just before the Bolshevik Revolution. The focus of Zamyatin's book is the creation of an impersonal, authoritarian system built on the deprivation of knowledge and the manipulation of fear. In we, individuals in a mass society are manipulated by him, the benefactor, the strongman on high. They're transformed into a homogenous, cowed collective. And Zamyatin soon found himself in the same situation. He fell victim to Stalin's repression and purges in the late 1930s, just around the time that George Orwell was beginning his own explorations of working-class life in Northern England. Orwell's fear of the loss of individual freedom, the degeneration of the state and the rise of tyranny seems as relevant today as it did in the 1940s or in the actual 1984. And in this context, it's worth bearing in mind that the BBC was the product of this same emergent mass society that Zamyatin and Orwell observed. But the BBC was ultimately intended to liberate the masses from the deprivation of knowledge 
and the manipulation of fear. Because the BBC is framed around the idea of equal access to information. It's rooted in the concept that knowledge and reasoning are the antidote to fear. The importance of having an educated, self-motivated and responsible population was actually at the heart of the BBC's creation. In 1919, the British government issued its final report on adult education in the UK, which advocated the permanent national necessity of establishing a system of adult education to keep up with the unfolding democratic, societal and industrial challenges of the post-World War I era. That report concluded that British people should be able to decide what they wanted to learn for themselves. They should think for themselves and make informed judgments. The British educational system should facilitate individual agency and critical thinking. And the BBC was intended as an informational instrument, a tool for people to gain knowledge. So confronting fear involves access to knowledge. Reasserting agency. And as I learned through studying Russian, we can dispel and manage fears through education, advanced preparation and training. Dealing with danger requires paying attention and asking questions. And no great achievement by individuals or humanity throughout history has ever been possible without this combination of elements. So in concluding, let's consider again the current war in Ukraine. Despite the horrors of the conflict, Ukrainians have confronted their fear and exercised their own agency. They've learned from their mistakes, as well as from Russia's and Vladimir Putin's. Ukrainians have refused to be cowed or intimidated. They've taken collective action to fight back against tyranny and authoritarianism. The odds are stacked against them, but they've turned fear into courage. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. From Washington, D.C., this is the fourth and final of this year's BBC Wreath Lectures with Foreign Affairs Specialist Fiona Hill. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression. This year's Wreath Lectures focus on the four freedoms, a concept that came from U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt. The second, freedom of every person to worship God in his own way, everywhere in the world. 
In his State of the Union speech of 1941, he argued there are four essential freedoms that all people are owed. The third is freedom from want. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Freedom from fear means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. In this lecture, Hill argues that freedom from fear does not just require courage, it requires good information. And the Russian government, during its invasion of Ukraine, is adept at spreading bad information. Here's the second part of her lecture, followed by a Q&A hosted by the BBC's Anita Anand. Fiona, thank you so much. What I really want to know is what did the West do to make him think he could get away with this? Well, we actually did a lot of things, partly by just being ourselves. For Putin, he presides over a vertical of power in Russia. He's the only one who counts. He's the only voice who counts. And we tend to argue among ourselves all the time. We have a whole cacophony of voices. It's not really kind of clear, you know, whether we've made our mind up or something, whether when we're fighting with each other, it means that, you know, kind of... We hate each other and we're, we're not going to be able to get together in uh, the case of, of a problem. So Putin actually thought we were in complete disarray. There'd been the pullout of Afghanistan, that had been something of a shambles. There'd been Brexit, of course, with the United Kingdom leaving Europe and then fighting with France over all kinds of issues. In Germany, Chancellor Angela Merkel had left and then there was a new untested coalition government. And just on every front, when Putin looked at it in NATO, in the European Union, there was always somebody bickering with each other. And all of our politicians look unpopular. Vladimir Putin's the guy who has 80% approval ratings, and we're lucky if most of our politicians have about eight. So Putin clearly thought that if he did something, we wouldn't do anything in response. And also, we were addicted to Russian oil and gas. So his calculation was that he would move into Ukraine with impunity, just like he'd invaded Georgia in 2008, and we hadn't really done very much when he'd intervened in Syria, for example. So for him, this was a very propitious moment. Mm. There is a school of thought that he is the precipitator of a lot of the chaos around the world. How much is true that he is the puppet master behind a lot of the chaos? He actually just piles on. He's not really the puppet master. I mean, actually, he'd like us to think that he is. And in fact, when we actually give him that credit... We, you know, pile on ourselves as well. We give him, you know, much more advantage, in fact, to mess about because the whole idea that Vladimir Putin could be in there messing about in our elections or, you know, carrying out all kinds of atrocity on every front gives uh, the Russians even more reach than, you know, they actually do in effect. What um, we see instead from Putin and the people around him is that they're looking for larger trends. I mean, this goes actually back to the um, early Bolshevik and early Soviet period, where they just looked to see where they could kind of meddle and encourage and nudge a trend in a certain direction. So Putin, I would just say, is an accelerant uh, on fires that are already burning. And he takes advantage of the things that people do to each other. So any kind of disunity on our part, he just tries to basically 
exacerbate it, to sort of jump in and make things worse. And he can do that verbally. I mean, you often see him in his uh, television pronouncements, uh, for example, or he can actually do it in much more active ways in what the Russians call, in fact, active measures by getting somebody like Evgeny Prigozhin, somebody who's often uh, in the news these days, the head of the paramilitary organisation, the Wagner Group, and the former chef, the head of the Kremlin Catering Company, who set up the Internet Research uh, Agency in St. Petersburg that meddled in the 2016 election. In fact, has recently taken credit for doing that and also said he's been meddling again in recent elections in the United States. He can set someone like that up to actually actively do something to stir up trouble. Okay. I'm very keen to open it up to our audience here in Washington, D.C. I would very dearly like, we've got a lot of young faces who are going to be the diplomatic service of the future. I'd love to take a student's question, first of all. There's a gentleman there... Thank you so much, Dr. Hill. My name is Colin Coulter. I'm a second-year MA candidate here at Johns Hopkins Heiss. You spoke quite a bit about how Putin manipulates fear to get what he wants. I was hoping you could speak a bit about President Zelensky um, and his role in helping defeat fear and his PR campaigns. What do you make of him as a wartime leader? I mean, obviously, one of the ultimate wartime leaders was Winston Churchill, the leader of Great Britain during World War II who people often look to as the model of a wartime leader. He wasn't actually quite so successful when he came back in peacetime. But the secret of Churchill's wartime leadership was, of course, rhetorical as much as anything else. And Vladimir Zelensky, Volodymyr Zelensky, has actually proved to be a really a master at rhetoric. Now, part of it's because he's an actor. He understands the importance of words, uh, the importance of playing a role, which Winston Churchill also for, I think he was a bit of an amateur actor himself, but he also understood that you stepped into a role, that you made it very important for yourself not to show fear because you were trying to model courage. I think that's what Volodymyr Zelensky has done. I mean, we don't know for sure if he really did say when he was asked if he would like to leave uh, Kiev at the very beginning of the war, but it's now become not just a meme, but an incredible slogan, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. But it's the kind of statements that Churchill you know, of course, uh, perfected uh, during World War Two. So he's been actually, I think, the consummate wartime leader. You were sort of drawing a parallel between Churchill and Zelensky. And thank you for the question, by the way. But does that mean that we are in a parallel situation where it is going to get bigger and uglier in the near future? This war has had global reverberations. It's not something that's just contained in Ukraine. And Vladimir Putin has been you know, trying to whip up the rest of the world in his support, just as Ukraine has also been doing the same. And the refugee crisis, the largest refugee crisis from Ukraine in Europe since World War II. This is the largest military conflict on European soil since World War II. And many of the same hallmarks of war from World War I and World War II are also present. Are our children going to have to do nuclear drills? in the near future? Well, people are certainly worrying about that. There's definitely that feeling of trepidation well, and fear again. What do you again. feel, though? I actually don't feel quite so frightened and intimidated by this, again, because of trying to understand what's going on in Russia and why is Putin doing this. In many respects, for him, just talking about nuclear war already has an effect. Psychologically, we're all thinking about it. He wants us to talk about it all the time. So understanding that, in some respects, we fall into his trap when we start to think about this is also really important. Back in the 1980s, when I was a teenager, in 1983 and 1984, against the backdrop of the war scare, 
I was terrified during the Euro missile crisis. I mean, I literally was frozen with fear at times, just like all of my friends were. I remember being in high school and people saying, what's the point of doing our exams? We're all going to die. You know, figuring out there was nowhere we could hide. I mean, the cupboard under the stairs of my parents, it was only two of us could get in. So two members of the family were going to be incinerated. You know, my father putting ridiculously large curtains on the window in case there was the flash of light, you know, the missile hitting, you know, Bishop Auckland in County Durham, direct hit, which seemed unlikely, but nonetheless, you know, we had those kinds of fears and nightmares. And so, you know, when you start to look into this, you understand the whole issues of how they play out. And I think, in a way, he's playing on our fears more than anything else. I'm Constanze Stetzenmüller. Fiona, Russia has been escalating its attacks on Ukraine. The Biden administration has been notably empathetic with the German government in its fear of escalation. I think they have acted very much in tandem and being very prudent, in refusing certain weapons deliveries, in uh, saying, making assurances to the Russians that we would not cross certain red lines. Where does this end? Should we be fearful of escalation, given that Putin clearly is not? Well, again, Putin is trying to manipulate our fears of precisely this issue of escalation, because Putin has made it clear that escalation could result in nuclear war. Now, what he means by nuclear war is him, Vladimir Putin, figuring out a way of detonating a tactical battlefield nuclear weapon on Ukraine, a substrategic nuclear weapon in Ukraine. So it's a one-sided nuclear war. It doesn't have to escalate any further, but Putin would like us to think so because he knows how terrified everybody was in the 1960s with the Cuban Missile Crisis and again in the 1980s with the Euro Missile Crisis. So part of his escalation is to give people the thought that nuclear war is just around the corner because Putin knows that there are vast swathes of people in Europe and elsewhere in the world who want this war to stop because this war is creating a lot of harm for other people in terms of energy and food shortages, famine in parts of the Middle East and Africa um, is looming. But also Putin himself wants this war to stop, but on his terms. Because time is not on Vladimir Putin's side. As we move into uh, 2023, Vladimir Putin and the Russian military are running out of stuff. He's been throwing a lot of men and equipment and ammunition at this war. And it hasn't gone anywhere in the direction that he thought it would. He thought this would be over in a matter of days and it's months now. Putin's hoping that the fear of escalation, the fear of refugees, the fear of all this destruction will get Europeans to push Ukraine towards making a deal and surrendering and capitulating. But then how do we de-escalate? You know, those who say the only way of de-escalating is to give a little ground. Well, how do you de-escalate if not that? Well, what we need to do is have a concerted diplomatic effort internationally. Every war usually ends when the two sides who are involved in that war decide that this is it, this has run its course and that they want to end it. It also usually ends because through negotiations and usually, unless there was an absolute victory of one side or the other, which I can't really see in this case, both sides lose. Now, Putin doesn't want to lose anything at all. And in fact, at this particular stage... Anything that he gave up, he conceded, would already be something that he's won because he's annexed additional territory from Ukraine more than he took in 2014 when he took Crimea. He's taken four regions of Ukraine. And he's saying that he's willing to negotiate a little bit of the borders of these regions. So he's not prepared to give anything up. So the only way that we de-escalate and we work on this is for, and it's a bit of a tall order here, for a really concerted diplomatic effort. 
So we have to actually find a way of working with all of our international partners and work also with countries that you know may not be so well disposed to working with us, for example, including China. Because this war is going to have knock-on effects globally. If Putin gets away with forcibly redrawing the borders of Ukraine, it will lead to the questioning of all of the borders, the former Soviet borders in Europe and in Asia, and it will lead to questions about borders of other countries. India and China, for example, have a, a conflict in the Himalayas and have fought over that border. There's going to be all kinds of things, not just China and Taiwan that we haven't thought of, that we shall be affected by letting Putin get away with this. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hill. Weiguo Zhang, size 1990. The question is, what does Vladimir Putin fear? I think right now he fears losing control, which is, you know, why he's trying to get a grip of this situation, because if he loses control, he could lose his own life. Vladimir Putin's been quite actually explicit about this in the past. He's often said when he's looked at world events that the person who loses in a power game often gets put against the wall and shot. And after the Arab Spring and the civil war in Libya, when Muammar Gaddafi was taken by rebel forces and shot in a drainage um, pipe, Putin is reputed to have watched that video over and over and over again. That's his big fear. His fear is of losing control, losing power and being shot. Or something along those lines. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Hill. I'm James Roscoe. I'm the deputy head of mission here at the British Embassy in Washington. One day... Putin will be gone. You've lived in Russia. Will the next leader of Russia be able to govern that country without resorting to fear domestically? And can Russia assert itself internationally without inducing fear in its neighbours? Well, that's been the um, perennial question throughout Russian history, in fact. Uh, but we have seen periods when it has been the case that Russia hasn't engendered fear um, in its neighbours. There have been periods of reform. And of course, most recently under Gorbachev, we did see, I would say, a massive dispelling of fear. I mean, I think, you know, myself, um, when I went to the Soviet Union as a student in 1987, that was a real turning point. That was the period when Gorbachev and Reagan sat down with all their arms control symmetry. They signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, ending the Euro Missile Crisis. And of course, Gorbachev was in the midst of all of his reforms. He wanted to turn the Soviet Union into a very different country. He didn't want to have it ruled by fear. Now, some people would argue that he actually did use a bit of fear because, of course, he clamped down on some of the non-ethnic Russian republics when they rose up and called for more autonomy in the Baltic states and Georgia and Armenia and Azerbaijan, for example. But ultimately, that wasn't the kind of person Gorbachev was. He wasn't somebody who wanted to see an empire of fear. Now, it's perfectly possible that someone like that could come along again. Okay. Now, I spy with my little eye a former Wreath lecturer in the audience. And you are? I am Stuart Russell from the University of California, Berkeley. And I'm wondering about the latest phase of the war in Ukraine, where the Russians are sending waves and waves of autonomous and semi-autonomous weapons. And whether as the technology progresses, we're actually seeing the beginning of a new kind of threat that's equivalent to nuclear weapons in its destructive capability, but a threat that's much cheaper, much easier to use, with no catastrophic threshold, and at least so far without the enormous stigma that's attached to nuclear weapons. Does this engender fear in you? 
Well, it certainly engenders concern. And I think you're spot on um, in terms of uh, the implications of all of this. With these swarms of drones that the Russians are using that they've acquired from the Iranians, we actually are seeing catastrophic consequences. Um, We're seeing the destruction of the entire critical infrastructure of Ukraine. That's pretty catastrophic. You don't need to have that huge impact of the kind of nuclear weapon that was exploded over Hiroshima and Nagasaki to really have kind of a surgical strike at the heart of a country and to have the same kind of impact. Most of the cities in Ukraine are going to become unlivable. Now, in many respects, you know, some parts of war hasn't changed at all. So I said at the beginning you know, of the lecture, we've got war by modern means going on. We've got autonomous weapons, we've got cyber attacks, snipers, and we've got trench warfare that's very reminiscent of uh, World War I. Some things have just not changed. My name is Kosi Obuli. I am a first-year student here, um, MA candidate at Johns Hopkins SICE. We really wanted to touch upon some of the parallels you mentioned between the 1920s and now. From the 1920s onwards, a large majority of the global south was very instrumental in bringing about the international system we have today. And now in the 2020s moving onward, you do see these countries that constitute the global south are generally in a position of non-alignment. Is there a fear that uh, Vladimir Putin will successfully utilize and leverage that non-alignment to fulfill his long-term goals? And if so, how does the West uh, counter that? That's a really terrific question. And what Vladimir Putin is trying to do is exactly as you know, you're suggesting there. He's actually seeing a grand realignment as a result of the war in Ukraine and is hoping, in fact, to create a different kind of block from the Soviet block of uh, the Cold War, but a block for Russia, including many of the countries that uh, the Soviet Union had ties to. And in fact, I mean, thank you for mentioning again the 1920s. Some of those ties with countries really do go back that far. For example, we've all heard about uh, Leon Trotsky being murdered in Mexico, you know, back in uh, that same kind of era. There were ties going back to the old Bolshevik and communist parties with Mexico and other countries in Latin America, Cuba, obviously. You know, so more than a century of many of these contacts. And Putin's trying to tap into all of those. And what he's trying to do is reframe and repackage the Russia of today and what he's doing in Ukraine, which is really an old-fashioned imperial land grab, territorial land grab, the same kind of thing that colonial powers did in Africa and elsewhere, you know, back in the day. And he's trying to basically present Russia as still the leader of the non-aligned neo- or post-colonial liberationist movements, the sort of neo-Marxist movements of the, you know, the 1950s and uh, 1960s. And he's trying to appeal to the same sets or parallel sets of leaders in all of these countries. And he's been getting some traction. People in the Kremlin, people around him, have been reaching out with propaganda and social media with all sorts of different hashtags and things. They've been really appealing to that kind of idea of Russia as the successor state to the Soviet Union as not a colonial power. Because Russia, of course, didn't colonise parts of Latin America and Africa and uh, and Asia, so he's able to tap into that. So one of the things that we actually have to do, and the US is perhaps not the perfect messenger for this, and neither is the United Kingdom, frankly, or France, any of the old colonial powers, but we need to think of ways of getting out there. The Ukrainians are trying to do this right now to explain exactly what is happening. There are places in the world where they say America has lost any kind of moral high ground that it thought it might once have had. The Middle East, sending drones to have engagements in places like Waziristan, where wedding parties might be blown up. The number of countries that are now turning around and looking at America saying, your messages do as I say and not as I do, so why should I anymore? 
But this is also a dilemma because what Putin is trying to do is make this a war between the United States and Russia. It's not. This is a war between Russia and Ukraine. And the problem, of course, is that Putin is trying to always play whataboutism and trying to make it all the time as if this is a proxy war between the United States and Russia. And so in that context, he's always able to point to, well, what about the United States did? What about the United States did in Iraq? Or what about the United States did in Afghanistan? What about the United States did Haiti, for example, or anywhere where the United States has had some kind of flawed intervention in the past? So what we need to do is constantly reframing this. And I do think in actual fact that you know, countries like Kenya and Ghana, that they've been quite outspoken on behalf of Ukraine and the United Nations get this. So it's really kind of a question of who the messenger is and what the framing of this is. We're going to have time for two more quick questions. There is a woman in yellow at the back. My name is Erin Thomas, and I'm a class of 2021 graduate of Johns Hopkins SICE. My question is, earlier you mentioned that Vladimir Putin's approval rating is about 80%. Could you speak on the role that dissent is having on the Russian war effort? And what population makes up that 20%? Yeah, I mean, at one point, Putin's ratings were 80%. In fact, after he annexed uh, Crimea in 2014, it hasn't been that high of late. And in fact, I think we're fairly convinced now when we're looking at Russian polling that his popularity is really dipping quite sharply. And you can also look at the hundreds of thousands of people who've been fleeing Russia, especially since the attempts at drafting large swathes of the population. So that element you said you know, about dissent, he tries to repress it politically at home. But I think there's also a sense that if Putin is no longer popular, then his position is no longer unassailable because Putin's power and influence resides on his popularity among the Russian people, the idea that he's the only popular Russian president. And so the more the war goes on, the more people are killed, the more casualties there are, the more the Russian economy dips, the more this kind of sense is that uh, people are opposed to this war, at least in the ordinary public, not just you know, among the elites, the more risky it is for Putin. So that actually is very important about how popular he is, not just how popular he appears. Thank you. And a questioner over here. I'm Honda Foreman. I am a research assistant at the Brookings Institution. And my question is, what can democracies do to build resilience against autocratic threats, both at a government level and a citizen level? Look, I think that it's the societal, the grassroots level that is actually the most important. I mean, we can have legislation and we can have all kinds of prohibitions against disinformation or intervention you know, in, our, in our politics in uh, some way, in our national security realm. But ultimately, it's all of us who play an important part in democracy, and it's the way that we engage with each other. So again, I just want to kind of make a big uh, plug for people like you and everybody here at SICE, you know, to go out there and get involved in networks. It's not just a question of voting, but, you know, how can you engage through your work here at SICE with other people out there in high schools, other universities, local community colleges, local activist groups, and, and, you know, basically keep the flames of grassroots uh, democracy burning. Well, I can't think of a better way to end than with some note of optimism. That concludes this Four Freedom series. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like more information, do check out the Wreath website where all the lectures from this series and many others are available. But for now, a huge thank you to our hosts here at the Johns Hopkins University School for Advanced International Studies here in Washington, D.C. And a very special thank you to Dr. Fiona Hill, our final Wreath lecturer.
You are listening to Ideas and to the annual Wreath Lectures from the BBC. The fourth and final speaker from Washington, D.C. was Fiona Hill, British-American foreign affairs specialist and former member of the U.S. National Security Council. The lectures are inspired by a speech from U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt. In 1941, Roosevelt used his State of the Union address to support American involvement in the Second World War. Freedom from fear means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. It is a definite basis for a kind of world attainable in our own time and generation. That kind of world is the very antithesis of the so-called new order of tyranny which the dictators seek to create with the crash of a bomb. A good society is able to face schemes of world domination and foreign revolutions alike without fear. Since the beginning of our American history, we have been engaged in change without the concentration camp or the quicklime in the ditch. The world order which we seek is the cooperation of free countries working together in a friendly, civilized society. This nation has placed its destiny in the hands and heads and hearts of its millions of free men and women, and its faith in freedom under the guidance of God. Freedom means the supremacy of human rights everywhere. Our support goes to those who struggle to gain those rights and keep them. Our strength is our unity of purpose. To that high concept, there can be no end save victory. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode or in any other, you can do that on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, where, of course, you can always get our podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. The series was adapted for the CBC by Matthew Lazen Ryder. Special thanks to Laura Lawrence and the BBC World Service. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval and Austin Pomeroy. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.